Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast who knows it should have been burned to the ground from the very beginning. Today we have Laura, Ellen, and Julia. And today we are talking about voter suppression and the history of elections and voter suppression. Uh, which is essentially us being like, yeah, we're obviously glad Trump was voted out, but we need to talk about all the flaws in the system. And I mean, you know, many of us uh, don't feel very soothed or comforted by by uh, President-elect Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, again, not to say that we're like, yay, Trump. It's more like, uh, can't really celebrate a neoliberal old white man who is, you know, a perpetrator of sexual violence. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> so. <laughs> Season of the Bitch officially does not endorse Joe Biden. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. It, thank you so much for simplifying what I'm trying to say. Um, but uh, so Zoe uh, could not be here with us tonight, but they really wanted us to read this Audre Lorde quote um which is for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house they may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change and this fact is only threatening to those who still define the master's house as their only source of support um and i'm pretty sure we've read this before on the pod because it's consistently so relevant but uh in this specific time, it certainly needed to be said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cough, cough. Uh, hope everybody was listening to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> looking at you people who keep posting stuff on Instagram. Anyway, um, <laughs> not everyone who's posting on Instagram. Just hopefully you know who you are. If you, you're not listening to this podcast, it's fine. <laughs> Uh, yes. So we wanted to talk about the history of voter suppression. Um, I thought it would be helpful also to just like do a little bit of background on like what elections have been like before, yes. because um, things didn't always look the way that they look now. Um, so like going back to when the United States was founded, boo, boo. In, <laughs> in 1789, Terrible. there was, you know, Voter suppression is maybe one way of talking about the fact that millions of people were enslaved uh, and weren't allowed to vote. Um, women were largely not allowed to vote. We'll get into that. Anyway, um, elections were also very different from the like highly professionalized and relatively unified version of, of election stuff we see today. So like obviously in the United States, every state has different election rules and that can really make a mess of things. But stuff used to be even more disorganized and random, if you can imagine. Um, Truly so for horrifying. example, <laughs> right, I know, just a nightmare. Um, different states used to vote on different days in the presidential election. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, you know, one state votes on Tuesday and other states votes on Wednesday, but like months and months apart. So like in the election of 1800, for example, voting started in the Northeast in April and didn't end until South Carolina voted in October. 
Like Whoa. Trump was upset about not having night of electoral tallies, but like imagine voting and then not knowing who the president is for like more than six months. Um, also, generally Powerful. speaking, yeah, there there usually wasn't like an individual election day in any of these states. Like voting took place over the course of a few days. It depended on the locality. Um, a lot of times it was down to the local sheriff to decide how long voting would go, which like, Yikes. <laughs> yeah, literally LOL at the idea of like a sheriff deciding nowadays, like when and how we get to vote. Um, there were often also like huge crowds at polling places, like polling places would be in like theaters or town halls. Um, you didn't have like a nice little booth where you filled out your ballot. Um, a lot of times you would fill it out and then in front of everybody literally walk to a ballot box that was frequently like up on a stage and then like push your ballot into the box. Um, your boss wow. might be there watching you do it. There might be dudes like dressed up in militia outfits who are there to like, quote unquote, support the party. Um, Voter intimidation, as we understand it today, was like not only common, but basically just like an accepted practice. Um, There also weren't any lists of eligible voters or voter registration forms. You just literally like showed up and voted. And if somebody in this like vast crowd was like, hey, that guy shouldn't be voting, then they just set your ballot aside and whatever election official was around would just decide whether or not that vote got counted. Mm. And that's what elections used to look like. Wow. So with the whole concept of like a secret ballot, was that just like not really a thing? So most states by the time the constitution was signed um, had gotten rid of like by like oral voting. Mm. There were still, I think like, Kentucky for a while was still voting by voice. Um, but the wow. actual idea of like, so, so extra not secret, but right. like the idea of having a secret space to fill out your ballot absolutely did not wow. exist. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about like some of these things that were like less codified as well. So, like, most people probably know that early voting laws were essentially like only white men who own property can vote. I feel like we all like learn that in history class. Um, but these laws like weren't as set in stone as we might think of them today. For example, women could sometimes vote. Um, one example is like if they were widowed and their husband had owned property, then they could be considered like the property owner. Do you think this increased murders of husbands? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, it's definitely possible. That could, <laughs> I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons to murder your husband. I guess, well, definitely. Like, that could for be sure, one. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Property ownership could be one. Definitely. Yes. Which I think, you know, is still like it was still only white women who like were married to someone who owned property. So it's still very limited, but like it just wasn't as codified. Yeah. Yeah. And I, actually in New Jersey until 1807, white women were explicitly allowed to vote, not just through accidentally having the death accidentally <laughs> having their husbands yeah. die. <laughs> so wait, what? So in 1807, they got their voting rights repealed? Yeah. Oh my God. Jersey was like, uh, no, we actually don't want to do this. <laughs> um, and 
On the other hand, though, um, the enfranchisement of non-property holding white men actually like proceeded pretty quickly. So by 1800, it's estimated that about 80% of white men in the United States could vote and that even more were included in voter rolls. Not that there were literal voter rolls, because again, there were no rules um, by the 1820s. Yeah. um, And something else that I learned recently that I found really interesting is that like in the early history of the U.S., you didn't have to be a citizen to vote. Um, A lot of states, I think uh, um, something like 40 states at some point allowed non-citizen voting. Um, So, you know, like we've been saying, this process was still very shitty in a lot of ways. There were qualifications based on race and wealth and all of these things. But um, just like, you know, the voter suppression had not been as codified yet as it is today um, and as it became. But basically, like as soon as voting rights started to expand beyond rich white men, almost immediately, there also started to be a racist and xenophobic backlash. Um, and it sounds like a sexist backlash because like, um, you know, New Jersey repealing the right to vote for women in 1807, I think is a good example of like, people getting these rights and then they get taken back again. Um, So like, I really think the whole history of voting rights in the US is also a history of people in power trying to reduce those rights and take them away and basically just try whatever they can to keep marginalized folks who disagree with them from having a voice in politics. Um, So one example of this, in the 1840s, there was a huge increase in immigration to the US Um, And a lot of those immigrants were more against slavery than like people in the U.S. um, tended to be. So states started being like, okay, we don't like that they might, you know, start actually voting to get rid of slavery and they might actually have some power. Um, And after the Civil War, when formerly enslaved black folks got the right to vote, states were just like, okay, this is like getting out of hand. Way too many people are getting the right to vote. We just need to like start doing something about this. Way too many people are participating in democracy. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So they couldn't like, I mean, they did a lot of things to limit Black folks from voting as well, but they weren't allowed to like make a law that Black people could not vote. So they did make laws to stop non-citizens from voting. And by the 1920s, non-citizens could not vote anymore in any state. Um, And of course, this did not only impact immigrants because there was also lots of racist backlash to voting rights, um, which I think Kellen is going to talk more about in a little bit. Yeah, so I think it's probably super important to to pause here and talk about the major expansion of the vote that happened during the Reconstruction era, which is for people who don't know the period right after the Civil War. Um, Black men, as we sort of discussed earlier, were mostly unable to vote in the pre-Civil War era, including including actually in much of the North. Um, But at the beginning of Reconstruction, the United States passed three amendments to the Constitution, the 13th Amendment ended slavery, though, as Ava DuVernay and others have pointed out, it left in place the possibility of involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime. We've talked about this before. We've talked about it in our two-part episode on mass incarceration a couple years back, especially. Mm-hmm. Not to plug us, but very <laughs> worth going back and taking a listen. Yes. Um, the 14th Amendment mandated equal protection under the law, and it's been a basis for a wide array of anti-discrimination rulings um, by courts. And then the 15th Amendment established the right of Black men to vote. 
So the results of these um, amendments are kind of hard to exaggerate, like how significant they were. You had black men, including formerly enslaved people, like people who had been in slavery not 10 years before, being elected to the House and even the Senate, the national like legislature for the first time. Um, there were black legislators in state houses and black city council members, like all across the South, black people participated in rewriting state constitutions. Um, women of course still couldn't vote in presidential elections, although states out West actually started granting women the right to vote in lower level elections in 1869. (laughs) Nice. Um, in many ways, it was this huge moment for democracy, Um, historian Eric Foner calls it an unfinished revolution. We'll kind of get into why it was unfinished. W.E.B. Du Bois thought it was like the most radical period in American history. Um, just full of possibility. But, uh, as you can imagine, white people who had been used to claiming black people as property were not thrilled with these developments. And so that's why at the same time that all this is happening, Reconstruction also saw a huge backlash. It's why the rise of the first Ku Klux Klan, for example, took place during Reconstruction. Um, As federal intervention in the South, which is what was in large part protecting Black rights, became less popular in the North. Like the, the United States Army was literally like dispersed all throughout the South, like literally protecting black people um ulysses s grant was in charge of like this major push to eliminate the kkk and mostly did it until they came back in 19 around 1915 like the federal government was very involved in protecting african-americans rights but northerners sort of started to grow tired of that it's fascinating in the worst possible way if you look at like documents from that era you see people saying things like well they're free now why can't they stand on their own two feet it's not up to us to coddle them like they should be able to take care of and provide for themselves the bootstraps argument is playing out in literally like 1870 yeah that so reminds me of like stuff we hear today of like you know we already give people like a little bit of welfare so why can't they just like take care of themselves and it's It's like no yeah it is it is striking the degree to which the rhetoric from the reconstruction period for people who want to end reconstruction looks like people arguing against any kind of welfare also Um, i just i i this is just a minor tangent and i just need to say that it is a personal pet peeve of mine that (laughs) the original term terminology of the phrase like to pull oneself up by them boot by their bootstraps was meant to describe an impossible task because you cannot pull yourself up i mean it's yeah it's literally impossible so like the fact that it was originally literally a phrase that was used to describe something that was impossible and now has become like literally the backbone of american society uh, as to like essentially to rationalize racism and classism. Uh, But anyway, sorry, I digress, Kellen. No, that's, I mean, exactly right. Like, uh, it's wild. Um, So to to make a long story short, um, (laughs) it is a very long story. Um, Reconstruction ended with the election of 1876, which election fact um, was disputed and didn't get resolved until Democrats 
who, as Trump is like very fond of saying, um, the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. Right. Democrats were the more racist party in like, you know, the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> right. I feel like the thing is like both parties are racist. It's just like which was more extremely racist right. at which point in time. <laughs> which exactly. was using more covert racist tactics. Right. Exactly. Right. So um, I will say, though, that that black people were actually participating in the Republican Party and were getting elected on the Republican ticket. Not saying there there absolutely were racist Republicans at the time, totally. but the the right. Republican Party was in the Civil War era and in its immediate aftermath, like a truly radical party in a lot of ways. Um, that being said, we'll see how things turn out because election of 1876, the Republican Party was like, okay, we'll end Reconstruction. We'll give up on protecting Black people's rights in exchange for the presidency. And that's how Reconstruction ended. And in the sort of 30 years that follow, you see Jim Crow start to be constructed. It's really like around the turn of the century that Jim Crow starts to take force. It doesn't happen immediately, but... Um, the first poll tax that you see come into play is in Georgia in 1877. So there is kind of this immediate start to trying to figure out how do we disenfranchise people. Um, But like I said, it really picked up pace around the turn of the century between 1890 and 1910. Literally every state in the South ratified either new state constitutions or added amendments to their old ones to include poll taxes, which meant that you had to pay to vote literacy tests, which meant that you had to prove you could read to vote, grandfather clauses, which meant that your grandfather had to be able to vote for you to be able to vote, and other measures that were expressly intended to disenfranchise Black people. But if you're right, if you're like, wow, this actually sounds like it might disenfranchise like a lot of poor people who are not just Black people, because literacy rates, especially (laughs) in the South among poor people, were like really low. And like, how would poor people have the money to pay for poll taxes, even if they were white? You're right. This actually did disenfranchise a lot of poor white people, too. Yeah. Um, the populist movement of the 1890s, which brought together poor farmers, black people, some Republicans, was extremely threatening to wealthy Southern Democrats. And that's another thing that kind of goes in to creating this big push for disfranchisement in the 1890s through the 1910s. Um, side note, please read about the populists. Incredible class consciousness energy. They get short shrift in U.S. history classes. I digress. Um, And I just want to sort of conclude by emphasizing that these legal measures were often accompanied by extreme violence. So, you know, everybody knows about lynching, which was one way that whites tried to terrify black voters and keep them from going to the polls. Um, But I also wanted to just talk a little bit about the story of Wilmington, North Carolina, where in 1898, Democrats led a group of 2000 white men in killing up to the, we don't know the exact numbers, but up to 300 people in a literal coup. So the story is Wilmington was the biggest city in North Carolina. It was a majority black city. It was run by the Republican party, which like I said earlier was at that time interracial, a number of black men held local office. Um, And in, you know, the Republican party in the 1890s in North Carolina, especially still had some of these aspects of radicalism in it. It was probably the last place in the South where that was really true. Um, And they, 
the Republicans in 1890s North Carolina stood for debt relief, which is obviously an issue that was important to both poor blacks and poor whites. They wanted to make the state more small d democratic, like allow Democrats had made it so that the state government, which was easier for them to control, would appoint a lot of local officials and Republicans ran on getting power in North Carolina and turning that around so that there was more local power, which again was re-enfranchising black people. So anyway, that's what that's what things looked like. The you can imagine why the more aristocratic, lily white Democratic Party hated all of that. Right. Um so in 1897 leading up to the 1898 uh election, the Democrats in Wilmington ran what was literally called the white supremacy campaign. Um <laughs> That yeah. is, that Sounds was the bad. strategy. And yeah, that was, it was that. <laughs> they just um, ran, they just went for it. They had a newspaper literally called The Caucasian. Oh my, my fucking God. God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they were not fucking around. Um, in the lead up to the election, these uh, groups called white government clubs were formed. And uh, you'll remember the KKK was sort of exterminated. This is fulfilling basically the same paramilitary role. Um, they, on when election day rolled around, they armed themselves, started patrolling and guarded, um, voting stations to make sure that black people and known Republicans were not able to vote, literally unable to vote. So the Democrats won the election, but winning the election wasn't enough. Um, about two days afterwards, despite this blatant voter intimidation suppression, giving them what they wanted, the city's Democrats began this incredible reign of destruction. They destroyed Black-owned businesses, what was, including what was at the time the only Black daily newspaper in the entire country. Um, they forced multiple city officials to resign at gunpoint, including the mayor, the whole city council, and the chief of police. Um, like I said, up to 300 people, we don't know exactly, were killed, mostly African-Americans. And in the aftermath of the attacks, more than 2,000 African-American residents of Wilmington actually fled the city permanently. So as the icing on the cake to all of this, um, official North Carolina state literature actually still refers to the coup, which very clearly was a coup, as a quote-unquote race riot. Uh, but of course, but yeah. of course, yeah, it's awful. Um, so it may feel like we're jumping ahead, but really, um, on a legislative front, there were there weren't like huge notable changes to the electoral system until the Voting Rights Act in 1965, uh, which outlawed <laughs> outlawed voter suppression banned literacy tests, poll taxes, and provided for federal oversight for states with a history of voter suppression. That part is extremely important and we'll come back to later. Um, so by 1968, just three years after the Voting Rights Act, Black voter registration in the South had increased by 1.3 million people. Um, and between 1964 and 1969, the black registration rates soared. And I know Laura's going to share some numbers. And I just wanted to say for comparison before she gets to them, that in 1930, before all this happened, it's estimated that less than 5% of black people in the upper South and less than 1% of African-Americans in the deep South were registered to vote in 1930. Yeah. So um, from... 
1964 to 1969, the black registration rates in Alabama uh, shifted from 19.3% to 61.3%. In Georgia, from 27.4% to 60.4%. From In Louisiana, 31.6% to 608 And truly the most incredible one is Mississippi, which was 6.7% and shifted to 66.5%. Incredible. Yeah, that's like 10 times. More. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, one thing that I just want to note here is like these racist voter suppression tactics have had immensely lasting impacts on the voting rights of people of color And also, like we've talked a little bit about on other people who have just, you know, gotten swept up in these laws or, you know, weren't even the target of them, but still were impacted. Um, After the 15th Amendment was passed, there started to be really high voting rates, Um, like something like 80 percent of eligible voters were often voting in presidential elections. But after voter suppression laws started coming into play, that all changed and only about half of eligible voters were voting largely because states were using these racist policies to prevent a lot of people from being able to vote. But even after the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, those numbers didn't really change. Um, Like Laura was just saying, black voters started registering at much higher rates, but overall the voting rates did not actually change that much. And one thing this suggests to me is that these types of voter suppression laws, like they don't just literally stop people from voting, although they very much do that, which is bad, but they also erode people's faith in our electoral system so that it just seems kind of like pointless to vote if the government just takes away people's right to vote as soon as they start passing policies that people in power don't like, then it's like, what is even the point of voting? And I think people see that and they feel that their vote is not really being seen to matter by most people in power in the U.S. Or it is being seen to matter, but they're just like suppressing their right to vote. Um, And, you know, I should say that even when these policies get less bad on paper, they don't necessarily get less bad in practice, which we are going to talk more about. But it's like even as things start to improve in practice, the impacts don't necessarily lessen right away. Even today, the voting rate in presidential elections still hovers around 50 to 60 percent. Like that hasn't really ever gotten better. These laws have just had like really, really lasting impacts on the whole way that we vote in this country. Yeah. And as Kellen was talking about earlier, even after the Voting Rights Act was passed, um, racist white people still had intimidation tactics um, around voting. So, mm-hmm. you know, that like in even though things changed on paper, um, you know, lynching continued. There were things that that continued uh, throughout the the late 60s. Um, right. So. To kind of switch a little bit more into modern voter suppression, um, as the South gained more than a million black voters, so segregationists just decided they wanted to suppress the black vote with more sophisticated ways. So part of this was to create the voter fraud myth as justification for modern 
suppression. So this is still something that we see, like people being like, oh, people can register like the the rationale for having all these fucking steps you have to take to register to vote and like buy certain dates and whatever the fuck. It's all because of fear for the voter fraud myth. So it's literally non-existent in reality. So uh, at this time, people traded out the term segregationist for conservatives, uh, which is obviously still the term that we use now, and racism became more covert in politics. The Brennan Center seminal report on this issue called The Truth About Voter Fraud found that most reported incidents of voter fraud are actually traceable to other sources such as clerical errors or bad data matching. Um, And the report also found incident rates between 0.0003% and 0.0025%. So again, even though the majority of those cases are clerical errors, the percentage still is less than 0%. Yeah. It's also just, I feel like it kind of reminds me of like how the justice system works where it's like, I don't know, like I feel like it's okay if like two people who shouldn't vote vote, if it means that everybody else will be able to vote. Like that doesn't seem really even that bad. (sighs) Right. Right. No, totally. Um, and so this, what I wanted to get into, um, voter ID laws, uh, which is a whole fucking thing. Um, but what this means is that there are D R IDs required for registration and or voting. 34 states require this still. And Democratic-leaning voters, which include Black, Hispanic, students, elderly, disabled voters, are less likely to possess a valid, quote-unquote, valid government-issued ID because there are many barriers to getting IDs, uh, whether it's financial, accessibility, transportation, language, name name change documentation, um, or, you know, many more reasons. Native Americans who live on reservations often don't have street addresses, which are required for voter IDs. And more than 10% of U.S. citizens lack this kind of identification, which is further exacerbated among marginalized demographics, as 18% of young voters lack ID and 25% of African American voters lack ID. The National Voter Registration Act in 1993 says that voters can be purged only if they ask, move, convicted a felony, are mentally incapacitated, quote unquote, or die. Now, there's a thing called voter, voter, (laughs) voter caging, (laughs) voter caging, (laughs) which means sending mail to addresses on voter rolls and purging any voter who is returned on the ground that they do not legally reside at their registered addresses. For example, Ohio Ohio purges voters after missing one election and not responding to a mailed notice. And surprise, surprise, over the past five years, Ohio has purged two million voters from the voting rolls. And as a reminder, Trump won Ohio by about 447,000 votes. 
The Brennan Center for Justice reported in 2018 that nine southern states, all listed under Section 5, which we're going to get into more in a minute, were found purging voters more aggressively than other states. Damn. I also just want to say I find like the whole mentally incapacitated thing to be very whack as well. Um, This is like a thing in almost every state that you can have your right to vote taken away if you're found by a court to be like mentally incapacitated or if you have any sort of like conservatorship or guardianship requirements imposed on you. Um, And this has been used to deny neuroatypical people the right to vote of all stripes, like folks who have autism, you know, just like anything you can imagine that neurotypical people might not understand, Um, particularly for folks who are poor working class. Like a lot of people have had their right to vote taken away because of this, which really sucks. Truly. Um, So as I alluded to uh, just before, um, there's this thing in the Voting Rights Act um, that is called Section 5. So Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was designed to ensure that voting changes in covered jurisdictions could not be implemented could not be implemented until a favorable determination had been obtained. So essentially what this was is it was like it was trying to protect newly enfranchised voters in the South um, by not allowing state governments to change their voter laws without like a trial period um and like with like approval by federal courts um but <laughs> recently the supreme court struck down section 5 cuz uh you know who needs it uh so southern states from Arizona to North Carolina have closed down at least 868 polling places Many states like North Carolina and Ohio eliminated eliminated same-day registration and re- reduced the early voting period. These changes affected and disproportionately disenfranchised poorer minority voters who have more transportation barriers, employment barriers, um, to when they're able to get to a voting station. Only 16 states allow same-day voter registration. Um, This is really a a batshit thing to me. When I lived in Oregon, I was automatically registered to vote. As someone who lived in New York State for pretty much my whole life, I was like, what is this magic? Um, It, But it's also like, if you actually think democracy is real, automatic voter registration is the only thing that makes sense. and yeah, it's funny because I was going to say, like, coming from California and New York, like, the idea of same-day voter registration seems like an unheard of, like, mystical thing because yeah. you just have to jump through so many hoops. But it's like, yeah, you're totally right. It actually just makes sense for everyone to just be registered automatically. Well, and it and it, it just amplifies because we have the primary system. So like in New York State, you have to be registered as a Democrat. Like if you wanted to be an independent voter for other reasons, you're not able to vote in the primary. You need to be registered to the Democratic Party or registered to the Republican Party to vote for either the Democratic or Republican primary candidates. So go ahead. Well, I was just going to add, this is like partly 
this all of these arcane party registration rules like are we didn't talk about it because there were so many ways that like people were disfranchised in the south but yeah. another thing that they did was the democratic party um made it so that only white people could vote in their primaries because as we talked about you couldn't explicitly say no black people can vote in this state you can use poll taxes etc cetera, etc cetera, like when those things were legal but another thing that they did just because there were so many barriers was to say that only white people can vote in the democratic primary and yeah. so because the Republican Party back in the day, the power was completely decimated in the South, um, the Democratic Party primary was basically the election in the way that like the, the that is still the right. case. Like the primary is basically the election in a lot of different jurisdictions. And so a lot of these arcane rules like are it, like voter suppression rules in and of themselves totally. in a lot of ways. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just had also like a ton of friends who wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders, but were registered independent and couldn't and didn't know that. Right. That was a and thing. that's the Democrats are like, that's voter suppression. Exactly. Um, so again, this is just a reminder that the Supreme Court sucks and has always sucked and will continue to suck. Um, and so don't let that be a guilt trip into you voting for someone who doesn't actually care about you like the Democratic Party anyway. Um, <laughs> but and literally this was just in 2013. They were like, LOL, it's fine. We don't need to care about the South being racist anymore because we're a different country and we can just let them do their thing. Oh, no. Nine states, Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia passed voter restrictions almost immediately after Section 5 was gutted. And now 20 states have new voting restrictions since 2010, including voter ID laws, laws restricting registration, decreasing early voting days and hours, and more. Yeah. And it should also be noted for people who are like trying to rehabilitate George Bush, that it was the John <laughs> Roberts court that made this possible. Like your fave, like watercolor artist, George W. Bush is personally responsible for the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So just yeah. like remember that also personally responsible for the death of like a million Iraqis. Why are we doing this? Right. But I digress. Right. It's also worth noting that in 2011, Alec, uh, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council, introduced 34 state ID, quote unquote, model laws. Um, so for those of you that haven't watched the documentary 13 by Ava DuVernay, which Kellen had mentioned before, first of all, why not? Uh, you can also, if you prefer books, read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Uh, but secondly, Alec is essential um in both in thinking about mass incarceration but also thinking about how laws are made in this country because they're essentially a massive lobbying party that works towards increased criminalization because they literally profit from bodies in prisons and is behind all major regressive voting laws like literally writing the laws and handing them over to conservatives there's like a story of one conservative senator being caught with forgetting to change the header like of the law that was written by alec and had the header of alec change the header to his uh 
office. Uh, and so when he like handed it out on the floor, oh it literally God. had Alec as as the <laughs> header. Um, but I digress. Essentially, Alec turns out policies that decrease our democracy and increase incarceration rates. Yeah, they do a ton of terrible shit. Folks may also know of them because they are behind a lot of the anti-BDS legislation that started being introduced in different states. So they're just like terrible overall. Um, So we wanted to also talk about some ongoing voter suppression methods. I think we've been talking a lot about how these policies, even if like the legal policies were removed in practice, a lot of these things haven't gone away. Um, But there's also a whole new set of terrible things happening this year with the pandemic. So, yeah, we just wanted to get into all of that. Yeah. First, just some background. Um, More than 5 million American citizens are unable to vote because of a past criminal conviction. Um, These laws, which are deeply rooted in our racial history, have a disproportionate impact on minorities, obviously. It was designed after the Civil War in a deliberate attempt to dilute the voting power of freed slaves. One in every 13 voting age black Americans have lost the right to vote, which is four times the rate for all other Americans. Yeah. And also, in general, most people in jail don't vote, even if they are technically eligible to. So generally, like unless you've been convicted of a felony, if you're in jail, like pre-trial or for a misdemeanor, you can vote technically. But states make it very, very hard for people to do so, perhaps unsurprisingly, if you've been listening to this episode. Um, and <laughs> If you, you know, have been paying attention. If you've been paying attention, taking notes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's like states don't really try to like tell incarcerated folks that they can vote um and the same goes for unhoused people um even though legally you are completely allowed to vote if you're homeless most states require an address and like we're talking about a lot of voter id laws mean that you have to have a permanent address um so states just like don't make it clear at all that you could put a shelter address or like a street corner that you live near and if you have to have certain types of id sometimes you can't just put a street corner that you live near so people understandably assume that they can't vote or actually are prevented from voting legally. Um, So, you know, that's just another like terrible thing that is not necessarily legally in there, but in practice it is. Right. Um, And then also with the pandemic this year, increasing vote by mail and early voting, um, there's been increased confusion about things like how to request mail-in ballots and whether you can vote in person, even if you receive a mail-in ballot. And all of these like weird, confusing technical things that aren't just like giving everyone the right to vote, um, those things have gotten worse this year. Um, A couple other things I wanted to mention, there's been mostly just like increased reporting this year. Some of this has actually been happening for a long time. Um, But just about the number of states that have been reducing their number of polling places, which we were talking about a little bit with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, especially in neighborhoods of color. Um, And that makes it harder to vote because then you might have to travel pretty far or wait Wait in line for like seven hours. Yeah, just like wait in an insanely long line. And this was also a huge issue with early voting in New York this year. And I'm sure in other places, too, with like basically because there aren't as many polling places open early, you have to go further and you have to wait longer to be able to vote while trying to avoid like possibly getting sick by being exposed to a ton of people on one single election day. Right. Um, And then one other, you know, just like fun, random thing that 
probably didn't have a huge impact on the election, but is still terrible. Um, people might have seen these reports of like fake ballot drop off locations popping up in California. Um, these were set up by the state Republican Party. And it's unclear what actually happened to those ballots. Like people thought that they were official locations to drop things off, stuck their ballot in. We don't really know what the Republican Party did with those ballots. So you know, you can see why people don't necessarily feel like voting is going to change much if like people can just throw your votes on the ground and ignore them. And it was literally decided in court that that was illegal. And the Republican Party was ordered by California courts to take the the fake drop off locations down. And they were just like, no, thanks. We'll pass. Another sort of voter suppression tactic I wanted to bring up, which like maybe people will think this isn't voter suppression, but I think it is. Um, we will defend argue, you until the very end. <laughs> I'm going to make a, take a, do a hot take here, which is that bad <laughs> candidates are voter suppression. Um, you know, yeah. like if you look at like the election of 2016, I haven't seen the, um, the numbers for 2020 on this yet, but if you look at the election of 2016, and you don't think of it as two candidates, but you think of it as three candidates, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and no one, no one wins. Yeah. And like a lot of red states, for example, are not places where Donald Trump won. They're places where no one won. So like I'm originally from Kentucky. My like my whole family my on my mom's side lives in Kentucky. Um, and like, I know that they get talked about a lot as like, I mean, like a lot of red states do like, why do you vote against your interests? Why do you vote for Mitch McConnell? And if you look at Kentucky, just as one example, like no one won in Kentucky, more people didn't vote than voted for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And like, that's voter suppression, like putting people out there that people don't want to vote for, like continuing to encourage them to think that it's not worth their time to vote. I think that's voter suppression. Um, And like something that I was thinking about today, which is (laughs) another hot take, is that I think that like if you look at what's happening right now, where Democrats are blaming the fact that they way underperformed polls um, on the left, despite the fact that all the candidates running on the left won, and most of the Democrats who lost were moderates, um, despite those facts, they're saying that like the left and calls to abolish the police and calls for Medicare for all are the reasons that they underperformed. And the reasons that Democrats underperformed is because they're underwhelming and because they don't want to take up voter suppression. Um, And I was sort of thinking about how like, in some ways voter suppression actually like works for the Democratic Party in that they continue to like keep, basically it's mostly poor people who don't get to vote, people who would most benefit from these programs that they don't wanna implement despite the fact that they're hugely popular. Like voter suppression mainly benefits Republicans because it's the only way that Republicans hold on to power, but it also benefits Democrats because it means that they don't have to implement policies that they don't want to implement. So like, there's another hot take for you. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. And I feel like, I mean, we see it with primaries too, where like both parties essentially just control who wins primaries and that prevents like actually radical candidates from being able to win those primaries in a lot of cases. Um, Yeah, it's all terrible. I feel like if you as the party, yeah, like 
I don't know. Okay. It's like if you as a party are worried that letting everyone vote is going to mean that you're not going to win elections, like that should be concerning. Like you should want everybody to be able to vote because you should be doing things that everybody like mostly wants to happen. And like neither party is really actually doing what most people are asking them to do. Yeah. Not to flash us back into history again but like looking back at the white supremacy campaign of 1898 in wilmington you had people who were actively saying black people are the reason that the democrats are losing we have to we like literally not mincing words truly saying black people should not be allowed to vote because they are the reasons that we can't hold office And literally just yesterday, I think, Lindsey Graham was on Fox News saying that if mail-in ballots are used to the extent that they were used in this election, the Republican Party will never win another presidential race. And it's like the the echoes of the past that we're seeing now are so strong and so disturbing. It's awful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, before we wrap up, you know, I thought I could talk about my favorite uh, thing that I love to shit on and is also terrible and awful in every way. And that (laughs) is Citizens United. So on January 21st, 2010, the Supreme Court overturned restrictions on independent expenditures from corporations and labor unions. And think about how that's playing out right now with fucking police unions. Really great. The infamous decision set a precedent through later ruling that through later rulings would spawn the creation of so-called super PACs, which can accept unlimited contributions from corporations, unions and other groups. In the election cycles following Citizens United, the balance of power has shifted more and more toward outside spending groups such as super PACs and quote-unquote dark money political nonprofits, unleashing unprecedented amounts of money toward political advertisements meant to influence voters. In 2018, each of these three outside spending groups were establishment-connected power PACs. The House GOP-aligned Congressional Leadership Fund... Uh, raised $136 million. The Harry Reid-connected Senate Majority PAC um, raised $112 million, and Mitch McConnell-linked Senate Senate Leadership Fund raised $94 million. So first of all, that's just a a totally nonsensical um, amount of spending like the reason why bernie sanders campaign was like fixated on the average donor being 27 dollars was because of these massive super PAC um donors that have happened since citizens united so i wanted to get into just slightly spending from dark money groups um because i had mentioned that before so what that means is that they do not disclose their donors aka we are kept in the dark about where that money is coming from this increased drastically right after citizens united though this hidden spending was already prevalent before the ruling what this ruling did was give dark money groups conduits that appear legitimate and transparent to the American public in the form of super PACs. Um, And this is what they would funnel their funds into. 
Although super PACs must disclose their donors, they can accept unlimited contributions from dark money nonprofits that are not required to disclose their donors. Therefore, a super PAC can simply list the nonprofit as the donor, keeping the identity of the actual sources of funding a secret. And so essentially what this means for us as people who live in the United States is that people have very little power if they do not have a ton of money, which we've already known, but it literally skews our democracy to favor the wealthy. Yeah. I, one other example of this that I wanted to bring up, um, because folks may have heard about it, just of how like corporations can really influence elections. In California, there's this proposition called Prop 22, um, which people often call like the Uber Lyft proposition. It's basically like something that's going to allow Uber and Lyft to not give their workers any protections and continue to consider them independent contractors. Even though California has now decided that's not okay for most companies to do, it's going to like exempt them from that. And they spent tens of millions of dollars campaigning against that. But also because you know, these days, like in many places, if you don't have a car and you need to go somewhere far away, you're probably going to call an Uber or Lyft. And also many, many people work for Uber and Lyft because the gig economy has made it so people can't find stable long-term employment. And they did this thing in the app where if you were a driver, you had to literally click something that was like, yes, I will vote yes on Prop 22 before you could use the app. Um, they later took that away after people like complained about it. But that is crazy, like literally an employer trying to control who their employees can vote for. And then also anyone who used the app just got all these free ads that were like, vote yes on Prop 22. Um, so there's just all these ways that like corporations can really influence policy and particularly through elections. Even now afterwards, like when I went to share that meme that I described earlier to my story, <laughs> Instagram was like, are you sure? that you want to share this and Whoa. i had to be like share anyway it was it, so it's just like they're just being like are you sure you want to talk you want to shit talk the democrats right now and i'm like <laughs> yeah i would love to thank very, you very sure thank you for asking <laughs> oh man terrible well anyway you know that is our show <laughs> uh we're uh, we're just here to remind you that there's a lot of things going on that really inhibit uh, the United States from being any form of a democracy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Very depressing. <laughs> it is. It is. But you know what? It's fine. Because the reality is we're going to be we're going to be fighting the fight no matter who's there. So we can just keep on doing that. Yeah. In the meantime, send us your memes. Yeah, send us your memes. Please send you us can, your memes. Uh, send them. them to us on Instagram or Twitter at Season of the Bee. Uh, you can also send us your money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch, which would literally welcome you into the most warm and inclusive online community that is existing on the world right now, which is our <laughs> Discord. Um and, you know, I'm literally not even biased. Every single person who's part of that community can confirm it. Um, and we also have a reading group where we talk about a bunch of things. You can join that if you join our Patreon as well. Um, and you should rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. And, you know, 
subscribe on Spotify or whatever it is called. <laughs> Wherever you're listening to Wherever us, you're listening. Give you us can, a like. You, you can know. do the buttons that it requires to give us the exactly. things that we need in this life. Um, okay. That's right. it. Yep. <laughs> Love you so much. Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 Bye.